Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thanks for jumping on and listening to the podcast. We are up to, gosh, I think this is episode 265. Uh, been quite an adventure. I have learned so much in the last two and a half, almost three years of interviewing people who are carving their own path in the world. And I think that's why you tune in and listen, is that you either are doing that or you want to be doing that. So we interview entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, business leaders, and really anybody who has an entrepreneurial spirit. And one of the key things to anybody who wants to go out and make things happen has to be sales. And today, my guest is Phil Jones, and Phil helps salespeople do better at what they do. And so he is a he is a speaker and a trainer, and he's an all-around nice guy. I've gotten to know him recently, and he helped me out a little bit uh, of recent when I was having to do a full-day training. As you know, if you listen to the show, I make my living as a professional speaker and master of ceremonies, but most of my speeches are about an hour or 90 minutes, and I had to do eight hours one day, and, and Phil was very gracious to, to share with me some stuff since he does a lot of that with his sales training. And I thought, you know, this is the type of guy we want to have on the show Plus, he has a great accent. And who doesn't want to listen to a half-hour conversation with someone who has a much better accent than I do? So, Phil Jones, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Hey, thank you, Tom. Welcome. It's great to be here. I love being in these kind of conversations. And now I'm conscious of how I'm sounding for the next 30 minutes. So, thanks for putting me on the spot. Well, you live in New York, but that doesn't sound like a New York accent. Where do you hail from? Um, I live in New York, but I also live in London. I have homes both sides of the Atlantic, and I'm from the from the UK. But um, I've travelled around all sorts of different places. So maybe we'll get into some of that as we uh, as we chat a little later. Awesome. So Phil, I, you know, I said that you're a sales trainer, but you know that could mean a lot of things. Why don't you tell everybody who's listening what is your business and and what do you do? It's a great question, and I think it's almost one of those impossible ones to answer. And when somebody asks me in a bar what I do, I tend to just make something up that's fun and consequential for the circumstances to to almost avoid that conversation. But I do loads and loads of different things, but they always fall into one of three areas. One is helping somebody to get more customers. The other is helping them to get those customers come back more often. And then the third thing is helping them to spend more money when they shop. And I've learned that if you can get good at those three things, then chances are you can do okay. So in terms of what I do right now is I largely travel and travel. And in between that traveling, I spend my time helping entrepreneurs and large businesses to get more of the things that they want. Awesome. Well, one of the things about being in this type of business is your business then becomes travel. So I imagine that you travel for both business and pleasure. But where are some of the coolest places that you've got to go for business? Well, I've now spoken on 56 different countries in five continents Wow, is where I've been paid to work. And I like that. I've still got two left to do. I've got two more continents. So if anybody listening can help me get a gig in Antarctica, then um, that is on my wish list. I'm happy to be able to put that one out there and see who can help me with it. But coolest places I've been, I've been everywhere. And places like Sydney are amazing. I love the US. I love the West Coast here. I like it here in New York. I've been to China. That was incredible. I spoke in Macedonia and in Tehran, and in uh, New Delhi, and uh, all across Eastern Europe that was just really, 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 really entertaining. And I think the funniest thing about all of the different places that I've worked as an entrepreneur is not the differences, 
It's more the similarities. And everybody thinks that the challenges they have in their business are unique to them. But having now worked with over 2 million people, the similarities are what surprised me more than the differences. You know, the guy with these small, um, say, finance business in Macedonia is facing the same challenges, the leader of a giant organization of a tech company in Silicon Beach. So, so that is so, that is so true. I think that is true in so many different areas. I think that's true when we talk about, you know, not just businesses, but also, you know, generations, everybody looks at, oh, the millennials are so different than the baby boomers. And then you have Gen X and they exploit those differences as being gargantuan. But at the end of the day, people are still people. And in your case, what you're talking about, businesses are still businesses. We still have to get customers. We still have to keep them happy. We got to get them to pay. And then we got to turn around and do it all over again. And you make a good point there where you say businesses are still businesses, but businesses are people. The whole thing is people. It's about how do you get other people to do stuff? And I hear people talking about, well, if I can just land this big client, this giant organization, and I say, who do you want to land? And they say, well, if I get GlaxoSmith client, like everything will be easier. I say, great. So what's your plan? They're like, well, I'm writing letters to GlaxoSmithKline. I'm sending emails to them. I'm calling them. I'm like, a company cannot make a decision. People make decisions. Who's the person you need to speak to to get to be able to make that thing happen? And I think the more that we can remember that everybody is just a person trying to do the best they possibly can to achieve the results that somebody else is telling them is the job that they need to go at, the more we can realize that we have more influence over people's decisions than we think we do. And that's where my fascination is in this whole entire world is if you want to be a great entrepreneur, you've got to learn the power of influence. And we talk about helping salespeople. Salespeople is what um, I think everybody is. There's this connotation that being a salesperson is like a dirty word. It's a profession that nobody's proud of. I don't meet many kids that say when I grow up what I'd love to be is. (laughs) Yeah, Everybody needs to sell something, be it a product, a service, or an idea. Yet these skills are getting forgotten. And they're still essential for life. Well, I spent a lot of my time as the director of marketing for a law firm, or actually two different law firms. And back in those days, the lawyers, you couldn't use the S word because lawyers were somehow above sales. Yeah. And I used to use it all the time and they'd go, we don't call it sales. We call it business development. And I'm like, okay, you know, we can call it a flower. But at the end of the day, if we're not getting new business in the door, if we're not selling, then we're going to close the doors. And actually, you know, back then, 15 years ago, law firms were like, oh, we're a profession. We're not a business. And then all of a sudden the recession hit and these big corporate law firms, many of them were closing their doors because they didn't have enough sales to cover their to cover their obligations. And all of a sudden, it's like now law firms have sort of a different attitude. And actually, the best ones have this attitude of sales. So it is, it's been interesting in my career to see that transformation with lawyers, because I do still some training with them. I, I, and I get that completely. I mean, much of my work on sales skills is with non-salespeople, people who wouldn't typically call themselves a salesperson, you need to sell to make a living. And I'm like, well, why is it you do Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thanks for jumping on and listening to the podcast. We are up to, gosh, I think this is episode 265. Uh, Been quite an adventure. I have learned so much in the last two and a half, almost three years of interviewing people who are carving their own path in the world. And I think that's why you tune in and listen, is that you either are doing that 
or you want to be doing that. So we interview entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, business leaders, and really anybody who has an entrepreneurial spirit. And one of the key things to anybody who wants to go out and make things happen has to be sales. And today, my guest is Phil Jones, and Phil helps salespeople do better at what they do. And so he is a he is a speaker and a trainer, and he's an all-around nice guy. I've gotten to know him recently, and he helped me out a little bit uh, of recent when I was having to do a full-day training. As you know, if you listen to the show, I make my living as a professional speaker and master of ceremonies, but most of my speeches are about an hour or 90 minutes, and I had to do eight hours one day, and, and Phil was very gracious to, to share with me some stuff since he does a lot of that with his sales training. And I thought, you know, this is the type of guy we want to have on the show Plus, he has a great accent. And who doesn't want to listen to a half-hour conversation with someone who has a much better accent than I do? So, Phil Jones, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Hey, thank you, Tom. Welcome. It's great to be here. I love being in these kind of conversations. And now I'm conscious of how I'm sounding for the next 30 minutes. So, thanks for putting me on the spot. Well, you live in New York, but that doesn't sound like a New York accent. Where do you hail from? Um, I live in New York, but I also live in London. I have homes both sides of the Atlantic, and I'm from the from the UK. But um, I've travelled around all sorts of different places, so maybe we'll get into some of that as we uh, as we chat a little later. Awesome. So, Phil, I, you know, I said that you're a sales trainer, but you know, that could mean a lot of things. Why don't you tell everybody who's listening what is your business and and what do you do? It's a great question, and I think it's almost one of those impossible ones to answer. And when somebody asks me in a bar what I do, I tend to just make something up that's fun and consequential for the circumstances to to almost avoid that conversation. But I do loads and loads of different things, but they always fall into one of three areas. One is helping somebody to get more customers. The other is helping them to get those customers come back more often. And then the third thing is helping them to spend more money when they shop. And I've learned that if you can get good at those three things, then chances are you can do okay. So in terms of what I do right now is I largely travel and travel. And in between that traveling, I spend my time helping entrepreneurs and large businesses to get more of the things that they want. Awesome. Well, one of the things about being in this type of business is your business then becomes travel. So I imagine that you travel for both business and pleasure. But where are some of the coolest places that you've got to go for business? Well, I've now spoken on 56 different countries in five continents Wow, is where I've been paid to work. And I like that. I've still got two left to do. I've got two more continents. So if anybody listening can help me get a gig in Antarctica, then um, that is on my wish list. I'm happy to be able to put that one out there and see who can help me with it. But coolest places I've been, I've been everywhere. And places like Sydney are amazing. I love the US. I love the West Coast here. I like it here in New York. I've been to China. That was incredible. I spoke in Macedonia and in Tehran, and in uh, New Delhi, and uh, all across Eastern Europe that was just really, 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 really entertaining. And I think the funniest thing about all of the different places that I've worked as an entrepreneur is not the differences. It's more the similarities. And everybody thinks that the challenges they have in their business are unique to them. But having now worked with over 2 million people, the similarities are what surprised me more than the differences. You know, the guy with these small, um, say, finance business in Macedonia is facing the same challenges, the leader of a giant organization of a tech company in Silicon Beach. So, so that is so that is so true. I think that is true in so many different areas. I think that's true when we talk about, you know, not just businesses, but also, you know, generations. Everybody looks at, oh, the millennials are so different than the baby boomers. And then you have Gen X and they exploit those differences as being 
gargantuan. But at the end of the day, people are still people. And in your case, what you're talking about, businesses are still businesses. We still have to get customers. We still have to keep them happy. We got to get them to pay. And then we got to turn around and do it all over again. And you make a good point there where you say businesses are still businesses, but businesses are people. The whole thing is people. It's about how do you get other people to do stuff? And I hear people talking about, well, if I can just land this big client, this giant organization, and I say, who do you want to land? And they say, well, if I get GlaxoSmithKline, like everything will be easier. I say, great. So what's your plan? They're like, well, I'm writing letters to GlaxoSmithKline. I'm sending emails to them. I'm calling them. I'm like, a company cannot make a decision. People make decisions. Who's the person you need to speak to to get to be able to make that thing happen? And I think the more that we can remember that everybody is just a person trying to do the best they possibly can to achieve the results that somebody else is telling them is the job that they need to go at, the more we can realize that we have more influence over people's decisions than we think we do. And that's where my fascination is in this whole entire world is if you want to be a great entrepreneur, you've got to learn the power of influence. And we talk about helping salespeople. Salespeople is what um, I think everybody is. There's this connotation that being a salesperson is like a dirty word. It's a profession that nobody's proud of. I don't meet many kids that say when I grow up what I'd love to be is. <laughs> yeah, everybody needs to sell something, be it a product, a service, or an idea. Yet these skills are getting forgotten and they're still essential for life. Well, I spent a lot of my time as the director of marketing for a law firm, or actually two different law firms. And back in those days, the lawyers, you couldn't use the S word because lawyers were somehow above sales. Yeah. And I used to use it all the time and they'd go, we don't call it sales. We call it business development. And I'm like, okay, you know, we can call it a flower. But at the end of the day, if we're not getting new business in the door, if we're not selling, then we're going to close the doors. And actually, you know, back then, 15 years ago, law firms were like, oh, we're a profession. We're not a business. And then all of a sudden the recession hit and these big corporate law firms, many of them were closing their doors because they didn't have enough sales to cover their to cover their obligations. And all of a sudden, it's like now law firms have sort of a different attitude. And actually, the best ones have this attitude of sales. So it is it's been interesting in my career to see that transformation with lawyers because I do still some training with them. I, I, and I get that completely. I mean, much of my work on sales skills is with non-salespeople, people who wouldn't typically call themselves a salesperson yet need to sell to make a living. And I'm like, well, why is it you do what you do then? I'm asking these people, and I, I do it for the profession. I do it to help the people. I do it because of the care that I have towards the community and all these reasons. They say, great, so you do it without getting paid then. <laughs> and they say, well, no, no, I want to get paid. I said, well, how do you want to get paid? Like badly or really, really well? Well, I want to be paid really, really well. So does that mean that somebody has to pay you really, really well for you to get paid really, really well? well yeah. So we've got to learn to be able to position ourselves in a marketplace, ask for the money that you would like to be rewarded at a level that you would choose, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get to work. Um, and I think being great at sales is a different picture than what people think it is. And that's the disconnect is people see that image. And I use it in a slide deck of mine is, have you ever seen the movie Matilda with Danny DeVito? Uh, I have not, but I'm sure my, some of my listeners are, are, are more movie versed than I am. And whether you're not are or not, it's that stereotypical used car salesperson, you know, wearing a garishly awful kind of sport jacket and quite clearly telling lies. And people associate salesmanship with mistruth. Yeah, in today's day and age, that, that, that can't be real. It can't be real in any way, shape or form because, well, the internet exists. <laughs> 
And we don't live in a world where the mess, you know, the, the level of being a great salesperson is the ability to sell sand to the Arabs, which is thrown around as a phrase. Because if you did that, tomorrow that guy wakes up disappointed and then destroys your reputation. So the job of a great salesperson, the job of a professional entrepreneur when it comes to building a business is to get the customers to say thank you, not applaud their sales skills, and then just pay the bill on time. And I think when we get that message that we're just in the helping business, and I think we could reword what a salesperson is and give a new definition. And that definition would be a professional mind maker-upper. <laughs> I love that. Hey, Phil, what led you to starting your own business and becoming a, a sales trainer and, and doing these things that you do? I mean, did you, did you always do this or did you have a corporate job for a while? <clears throat> Okay, well, uh, let me give you my story because I think some of your listeners might find this interesting. Is um, At 14 years of age, my parents did a really cool thing and worked like crazy to get me into a school in the UK that was probably better than my social demographic setting at the time. So that made me the poor kid. And that means that I was the kid that didn't have the trainers or sneakers or tennis shoes, as you guys would call them, that the other kids have. wasn't carrying the bag that the other kids had. When I was playing football, that's the one you play with your feet. Um, I wouldn't have the same boots that other people had. And I wanted those kind of things. So I did the thing that any kid would do. I asked my parents for the money for the thing and they pushed back and told me that that was inappropriate. So I started to get a little bit ingenious at my like 13, 14 years of age and wanted to learn what it would take for me to go out and make some money. My dad's a self-employed building contractor. And dad said, you can come to work with me. And he said, and I said, how much would you pay me? He says, um, I'll pay you what you're worth. So that's interesting. You'll pay me what I'm worth. I said, well, what is that though? What, what am I worth? He says, well, I'll pay you that when I know what you're worth. So I arrive on the day's work. I'm like up at 6 a.m. And I say, well, what do you want me to do? And as we pull in, we pull into a terrace house in the UK. And the roof of the house is now in the backyard. <laughs> my dad's going up on the roof to do the clever stuff. My, my job is to put the remains of the roof into what's called a skip that you'd know is a dumpster. So I have to fill that, but I'm looking at the pile and the pile is bigger than the hole in the dumpster. So I'm like, so what happens when I fill that? He says, well, if needs be, I can get another one. I said, well, how much do you pay me for filling? He says, 20 pounds. I say, great. So I get to work. I hustle. I fill the skip. I then get him to call another one up and I emptied the rest of the thing into the skip again. I filled it and the job's done, but he's still up on the roof doing the clever stuff doing the clever piece up there and i'm thinking well what do i now need to do i said dad is there anything i need to do i've made 40 pounds the trainers i wanted to buy were 45 i'm close he said well there's nothing more you could do i suppose you could knock on the door of the guy who owns the house and see if he's got any jobs that you need to help with so that's what i did i knocked politely on the door and the guy says well you can help me with some stuff in the basement there's some boxes that need to be moved around there's some cleaning up to do if you could help with that that'd be great so I set to work and did that out of the kindness of my heart, really, just to fill the time more than anything else. When the job was finished, the guy shook my hand and said, thank you, and gave me an envelope. When I'm in the van going home with my dad, my dad gives me an envelope. The envelope from my dad had the 40 pounds he promised me, and the envelope from the guy had a further 40 pounds in for the work that I'd completed downstairs. And at 13 years of age, I learned that you don't get paid by the hour, you get paid by the value you bring to the hour. This fascinated me. I also learned that if you knock on people's doors, you can make stuff happen. So wanting to be um, kind of prouder and braver, 
I started to knock on the doors of my neighbors and ask them politely whether they would be interested in having their cars washed. Some said yes, some said no, but a few just asked me how much I would charge. And I very quickly realized that meant they were interested. I did kind of okay with my little car cleaning business, so much so that by the age of 15, I wasn't going to school quite as often as I should. (laughs) And I remember getting invited in by my school teachers, questioning my attendance, saying, Phil, why aren't you coming? And I responded with a question. I said, sir, how much money are you making? School teacher refused to tell me at the time, but my little car cleaning business at 15 years of age had got to a point where it was earning me really around 2,500 pounds a month. So nearly $4,000 a month. So I kind of caught this entrepreneurial bug early. I went on to build a number of other entrepreneurial businesses through my teens. And then at the age of 18, was faced with a dilemma. I had an offer on the table for one of the most prestigious universities in my country. Parents wanted me to go to school and get that piece of paper that makes them feel like good parents. And I wanted to go and get a, you know, earn a living. So I said to my mom, how would you feel if I could get one of these big jobs, the kind of job you need a degree for without the degree? Would that make you proud? She said it couldn't be done. Three weeks later, I proved her wrong and became the youngest ever sales manager for a retail business in the UK called Debenhams Department Stores. So I'm leading a team at the age of 18 following their training program, turnover of around 7 million pounds, staff of 50, 60, 70 people. And I worked through 11 stores with that organization. So that was the department store piece. I then realized that I kind of hit one of those glass ceilings in the corporate world. You know, the only way you can get to the next job is if the person above you leaves or dies. And this guy was in great shape. So I figured I should probably look for a change. And I got a call through from one of the largest independent furniture retailer owners in the UK. Asked if I'd get involved in helping them turn around some broken stores. So that's what I had to do there is I got involved with experienced sales teams, helping them to become more effective. And we'd turn those stores around from they dropped back to maybe seven or eight million in turnover. They hit 12 million in the heyday. We'd turn those back around. And bosses were mesmerized at how we'd do it quickly, like six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks. And I gave them my answer, really. And my answer was simple. It was to just do the basics to a high standard consistently. They said, well, what else? I said, well, maybe a few sprinkles of magic. And they said, well, what's all that stuff? Can you write it down? And that was the point where I started to catch the bug for training. I started to realize that I got far more personal satisfaction seeing huge success through others than I did through any success I'd have myself. So I did that stuff. And then I got sick. And I was sick of working every Saturday, every Sunday, every public holiday. I work at a 14-day straight following Christmas. I just realized that the only people I was spending time with that I cared about were my customers. So I probably needed to change that up. And I got a phone call from a lady called Karen Brady, who um, not only was the CEO of a Premier League soccer club, but was the face of the TV show, The Apprentice. And I was offered the role of commercial director, head of retail at Birmingham City Football Club. And I was involved in large shirt sponsorship deals there, turning around the retail operation, opening new stores. and went from there to work with a Russian billionaire at Leicester City Football Club, did something like the same in just three months. And then I built a giant property business with a client of mine that I met through football. Um, and we turned over 240 million pounds at our peak. That was the kind of biggest insight I got into big business. The trouble with that business was it was fantastic until 2008 happened. We then had a product that was great on a Monday, but by a Friday, we couldn't give it away because the markets had moved. There was no lending against it. The currency market had moved in the other direction and people that were previously investing were now keeping their cash safe. So we like died overnight. We tried our best to keep that business going, but our only option was to bring it down ethically. There was no future in it. So we just closed it. 
didn't owe anybody any money. We just decided it needed to be something new. And when that point happened, I was looking for things to do. And all I could see everywhere I looked, particularly through the recession, was loads of really good people. Good people doing the best they can to build their business, either that or making a huge difference towards society, yet failing to get the success that I knew they were capable of for one simple reason. They didn't know how to sell anything. So for fun, I started to run little training workshops for them to look to be able to deliver essential sales skills to people who wouldn't call themselves salespeople, entrepreneurs, people who needed to go hustle and win new business and close the opportunities they were creating. And I was having huge fun doing so, filling these workshops up. And then people would say to me, can you come and run this content in my company for me? So I would go do that. And then I had to figure out, I might have a business here. I then wrote my first book, Toolbox. And that took off and it started to take me on the international circuit. Since that point in time, I've now done four books. Fifth book comes out next month. Um, I've, like I said, spoken on 56 countries, five continents, reached 2 million people. Yet still, it just fascinates me that um, I get to call this work. <laughs> hey, I, I, I totally get that because I feel the exact same way. You know, I'm, I'm uh, next month, I'm actually the master of ceremonies for an event in Philadelphia. And the problem with the master ceremony stuff is I can be gone for four and five days because you're there every single day of a conference, but right. it's only two and a half hours, maybe three hours from where my brother lives, who I haven't seen in three years. And so I said to my wife, do you mind if I go a day early? And so I'm flying in, renting a car, driving to, to West Orange, New Jersey, spending the night with my brother and then driving back to, to Philly the next day. And my brother is like, really? Someone's paying you? to come see me? And I said, yeah. And he goes, that's a job? He goes, you can just, yeah. you know, they're paying your airfare. You can just go a day early. I'm like, they don't care if I go a day early as long as I'm there by three o'clock on Saturday. And my brother's like, that's a, that's a cool way to have a job. Yeah, yeah, here, here. I mean, I, I have a home in the UK and one here in the US. And, and most of the times that I choose to go backwards and forwards are based on a piece of work that's funded. And that's what drives my social schedule. It's like, hey, I'm back in town and I catch up with my family in the UK. And then you know, I get to bounce around here in the U.S. and have friends in all sorts of different locations, and, and we catch up in and around the work that I do. So, Phil, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, wait a minute, I want the lifestyle this guy has. I want to do my own business. I don't want to be working for the man anymore. I'm, as you said, you know, you got sick. You got sick of working every Saturday. Yeah. If somebody says that that, they, that resonates with them, what advice do you have for them about how to make that leap? Okay. It's a great question. And firstly, be prepared for an incredibly bumpy ride. There is something that gets bounded around now, and I think the internet is largely to blame, that being an entrepreneur is cool and it's a fun thing to be. And we see these quotes that bound around on Facebook and people hashtagging things like Boss Babe and 5AM Club and Hustle or Die and all this kind of stuff. It isn't glamorous. Don't expect it to be glamorous, certainly not in the early days. When I started this business, I would go to three breakfast mornings a week, three evening network mornings and meetings a week. I'd work with my paid-for clients in between. What I'd also do, though, is I'd built a stage business model that gave me a chance to be able to take a step out. And when I talk to people about starting a personal brand business, I introduce what I call a cupcake principle. Now, if you give a cupcake to a child... What's the only thing they want to eat? The cupcake. Wow, not even the cupcake. They want the frosting, oh, the frosting and the sprinkles. Sure. 
the bit beneath is the thing that nobody's really interested in. It doesn't matter whether it's vanilla, whether it's like chocolate, whether it's like got jam inside it. I just want the frosting and the sprinkles. I think when many people get into entrepreneurship, they want the frosting and the sprinkles. That's a, that's a, that is a great, I got to stop you. That is a great <laughs> analogy. I mean, I ask questions of 250 some odd entrepreneurs over the last couple of years. That's one of the best analogies I've ever heard for entrepreneurship. Ah, you're very welcome. I do a lot with analogies. I think it helps people see things clearer. And that whole piece there means that they don't build the base right. They don't focus on the base. And it also means that when they get the thing that is a sprinkle or is the frosting, it doesn't taste good because they've got to live on it. So you have to look at what's the boring part of your business. For me, you know, I have a base level income that I need to hit to be able to meet my minimum requirements. And I don't mind putting it out there in this podcast. I need to make $12,000 a month. Otherwise, my ship starts going backwards. So that figure is something that I put high priority on and saying, can I do that with okay work? Not great work, not the things that I love to do, not the things that make my heart sing, with okay work, stuff that I'm going to roll my sleeves up into. But give me the confidence to know that that money is going to come every month because cash flow is king. doesn't matter how good you are at your thing. Without the cash flow, you've got a problem. So get busy at making sure that your survival money is covered. Now that you know that you can survive and that you've given a third of your time or half of your time or even three quarters of your time when you're starting out to be able to build that base of the cupcake, what then happens is you find efficiencies within your cupcake. What you then find is that you start getting opportunities for frosting and sprinkles, but they taste good. Then what starts to happen as your business starts to grow is you can start to spend more time dining out on the good stuff, but only because you built that rock-solid foundation. So be prepared to take big steps backwards. Be prepared to it, for it to be ugly. Expect it to be 10 times harder than you imagine it going to be, and you won't be disappointed. The other thing to prepare yourself for is it will go good in the early days. You take that leap, it will go great, because what you'll get is you'll get early adopters that want to show you some support. And it's like if you were a musician and you put on a concert, you could fill the first concert because all of the friends and family and your mom and your gran and your auntie and your sister and your nephew, they'll all come to enjoy the party to show their support. But the people who show their support in the early days aren't the people who buy from you forever. So you have to be prepared to do this and shoot upwards to let the thing drop down a little and then rebuild again from there. And if you can expect that to happen, you might go the distance. Oh, that's that's awesome. Awesome advice. Hey, I've got a few more questions for you before I can let you go. But first, cool. I got to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing. They do all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Phil Jones. Hey, if you <laughs> want to start a podcast, and I know that a lot of you do, I can't say it enough times. This show would never have happened if I hadn't partnered with Podfly Productions. Jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer they have for the listeners of this show. So, Phil, I call the show... Cool things entrepreneurs do. What is the coolest thing you're doing right now with your business? What's the coolest thing that I'm doing right now with my business? I guess the coolest thing that I do is 
because of the fact that I've got this base of the cupcake thing kind of sorted, it gives me the chance to work on areas that many people in my industry don't get the chance to do. I have a huge passion for micro businesses, like small, tiny businesses, for direct sales, for multi-level marketing organizations. And you know the people that want to live the kind of life that we talk about, but not rich and famous life. They just don't want to be on the clock. And they might be interested in earning a few hundred a month, maybe a couple of thousand a month, but not the big bucks of entrepreneurs. So what I've been able to do is to put together a distance training program for these guys where I run them as a tribe full of people for next to no money, but I help give them the skills that I'll be giving to giant blue chip organizations. And I give back to that largely for like next to no money, perhaps even free. And what's super cool about it, technology allows it to happen. So most of that now we deliver in Facebook groups through Facebook Live. And that couldn't have happened 18 months ago. So the ability to be able to engage with people fantastically and deliver rock star levels of service that normally people would need to pay a premium for through just technology and effort, that I think is pretty darn cool. And what else am I doing that's a cool thing is I'm about to release my fifth book and I'm just excited by it, like beyond all belief excited by it because your first book is fueled through naivety. You're just like, I got a book, I got a book. <laughs> your second book, you're like, I need a new book. And my third and fourth book just happened out of opportunity and they were just a fun little thing to do. And then this was the book that I probably wished I wrote as my first book. So now I'm nervous. Now I'm like school kid excited. Like, I hope people like it. I hope it's like good. I mean, I've got a reputation to uphold, right? Historically, I was just a guy having a go. Now people expect great things. So, um, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And I've, I've done it right, I think. You know, I've worked with quality uh, editors. I've worked with quality book designers. I haven't been like making this up as I've gone along. I've had a chance to do it the right way around and not feel rushed, but now it just adds to the nerves. And that nervous feeling is a fun thing to have back. So tell us about the book. What's it called? Where are people going to be able to find it? What are we going to learn from reading this book? Um, the book is called Exactly What to Say. And the, uh, the premise of the book, or even the subtitle probably gives it away, is it's the magic words for influence and impact. And I'm a big believer that often the difference between you and somebody like you in the world of business has nothing to do with your product, your service, your idea. It has everything to know it to do with knowing exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to make it count. Like word choices matter. And through working with like 2 million salespeople and the work I've experienced as an entrepreneur, I've learned that there are small sequences of words that can get other people to do stuff easier. So I've pulled this all together in a book of communication that kind of gives people a fair advantage in nearly every conversation. And the other fascinating thing about this book is I've learned that people in business are awesome at buying books. <laughs> They're just not so good at reading them. So I worked like crazy to make this the shortest book it could be, the simplest piece of advice it could be. I put white space in it and big fonts and easy call-out functions. It's like reading a children's book but making you feel smart. At least that's what I hope people think of it. So that that's so fascinating. The first book I wrote was like a regular business, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred page, 250 page paperback uh, called uh, Some Assembly Required, How to Make, Grow, and Keep Your Business Relationships. And it actually did fairly well for a self-published first round book. This was a, over a decade ago. My second book was a compilation of blog posts that we just sort of threw together that's 100 pages 
It it has sold like 25,000 copies over the years because we just sort of threw it together. It's called the ABCs of networking. And it's just, I literally wrote a series of blog posts like A was for attitude, B was for brand, C was creativity. And uh, my business partner for our little publishing company said, he just captured all that, gave it to an editor. And then all of a sudden he said, by the way, you have a second book. And I now have a series, the ABCs of speaking, the ABCs of conference (laughs) attendance, of of legal marketing. And they're all 100-page, 26 tips, you know, A through Z. And those things sell like crazy because people don't want to read a 300-page business book. They want a 100-page tips book. I mean, a 100-page tips book, though, by comparison to a 140-character tweet or a, you know, even a 300-word blog post is it's a long read. Yeah. You, know, like 10, you want me to sit still? That's read? a whole hour. Yeah, it takes an hour yeah. to read that book, yeah. And there's a lot of things that you can waste time on in an hour. So this book, it will be released when? It's July. It goes pre-release 3rd of July. And then I think official release is the 20th. What I would say to people listening is understand the importance of getting involved in a book launch in that pre-release period. It means so much to authors because it isn't like, oh, I'll buy it when it comes out. You get busy in that pre-release period, then what happens is it tells people like Amazon, people want this book. It tells bookstores, people want this book. So it gets it more shelf space. It means that Amazon put more of their weight behind it. It means when it launches, it launches as a good book and it gives us more chance. So know that, that if there's people you want to support in this industry that keep creating great content, support them when it's new. Because that's really the biggest thing that you can do to help anybody find success in a launch. So the title of the book, one more time, so that people can go and pre-order it via Amazon for this uh, launch time, is what? Exactly what to say. And if you just think yourself for a second that you get yourself in those, permanent, those perfect moments and the perfect opportunities to get the perfect result, and you think, I wish I knew exactly what to say. <laughs> that's, that's, I think it's awesome. And like you said, the title, the, the title says it all right there. Mm-hmm. So, Phil, I love to ask the guests who come on the show to go outside their own coolness and tell us who else they see. Because I think that I think entrepreneurs are observers. I think they're always watching to see what's cool out there. So I always like to ask people, who else, not you, who else do you see out there who's doing something that, where they're really crushing it? I think we have to define what crushing it is as well in that whole point. I think there's lots of people that, position entrepreneurship that is only successful if there's a dollar sign in front of it and it becomes all about the money. There becomes a point that if that's the only thing that you chase, everybody's going to fail because somebody's always going to be doing better and moving that bar on. And I was reading like only three years ago, people talking about five figure businesses and then six figure businesses, then seven figure businesses. And now if you're not 10 X in every year, you're a categoric failure. So Let's just pull it back in and say, well, who's making a difference? Who's making a contribution? Who's perhaps doing something that when they get to the end of their journey, they feel pretty darn proud of the things that have got going on. When I look towards people that way around, I love Michael Bungay-Stania's work as as the coach, helping people understand that coaching is perhaps back towards its purest form than it would have been. And if anybody listening hasn't read Michael's book, The Coaching Habit, that for me is now an essential modern day classic that more and more people should be aware of because it plays into everybody's life. And his, his belief behind wanting to, to get that message across to people and what he's prepared to do to get it to people, I think is phenomenal. Who else am I seeing that is, is doing great work? I'm trying to think about companies. 
And more often than not, the majority of big companies currently give me more disappointment than they do um, like huge satisfaction or envy towards. There is a guy right now, though, that, that is doing something super cool. He built a giant marketing consultancy in, uh, in the UK, in London. And what he then decided to go and do after crushing it, so to speak, is that he wanted to do something slightly differently. What he now does is he works with around 40 select clients and he has a farm up in North Wales in the UK. And what he's putting together is a program to help people live life with a huge amount more consciousness towards it about how not balance being the thing of being in equilibrium, but perhaps there might be more for you to be able to give as opposed to everything for taking. And, and, and that's a guy called Simon Jordan. He uh, He's inspiring me a great deal right now to be able to look at not just what I can take from this world, but what I can give back. Um, and how what you can do is you can take something that has been successful to give yourself more choices. Well, that's a perfect segue for the last question. And that is, I ask everyone who comes on the show, what is it that you do to give back to the greater good? Because I think you know, I think we want to do more than just make money. At least I hope so. I hope most people who listen to the show aren't just like, you know, how, how loudly can I ring my cash register? But we want to leave some sort of a mark behind. So, so what do you do? My big, big thing um, is to be a champion for entrepreneurship and a champion for entrepreneurship in a slightly different way to how most people would see it. You heard my story earlier on. I didn't go to college. And I think the college university education system lays down a set of tracks that are right for some of the people some of the time. Also, it does a very good job of training people to pay taxes. I think that's what it largely is set out to be able to do, is to keep the unemployment numbers down and train people to pay taxes. And that's just a personal opinion. I'm not sure everybody will agree with me. What I do love to be able to do is to find any opportunity I can to showcase to people that with the skills that they hold and the passion that exists inside of them, they can probably earn a living. Not a fortune, but a living. And another option that people have outside of traditional employment is to go make something happen yourself. And entrepreneurship doesn't need to be, let me float an idea and look for VC backing or stick it on Kickstarter or get Indiegogo to fund it. You can make it happen from nothing. That's what America was built upon. That's what Great Britain was built upon. And these things keep getting forgotten. So I try to work back with young people to light a fire up inside of them to say, hey, what can I do here that I don't need somebody else's help with? What can I take control of? What can I own? And what might there be to build that really adds some value to this world? So that's my big, big give back is anywhere there's kids that want to learn that there's a different way of doing stuff, anywhere there are senior people that want to learn there's a different way of doing stuff. I mean, I did a great piece of volunteer work just the other week with a group of people over the age of 55 that had been made redundant, that were wondering what to do next and thought their only option was to buy a franchise. And there is choice galore if somebody can just give you some of the steps to tracks to run on to help them realize how you can turn something you're good at into something you're getting paid for. Well, and I've been really focused on this whole idea of, you know, we talked, we did a whole episode about, you know, people who were over 55 who sort of just started their career at that point. I mean, you know, Ray Kroc was older than that when he bought McDonald's and, of course, right. the story of Colonel Sanders. And there's even recent, you know, many more recent stories of people and even actors and stuff who, you know, Samuel L. Jackson didn't start acting till he was almost 50. And right. so there's there's all kinds of stories of people who started, well, I just turned 50 this year, last year. And I made a sort of a personal pact that from 50 to 75, Five was going to be the greatest time of my life. And, you know, my, my daughter, who's 20, said, well, what about 25 to 50 when you were raising me? 
And I said, that was hard. And there were responsibilities. You know, I mean, I've got three more years. My youngest daughter will leave for college in three years, you know, and my wife and I are like, okay, so she can start coming with me when I travel to speak. And, you know, there's a lot less responsibility that's going to happen in this next quarter of my life. And, you know, I, I, I hope it's a quarter. You know, I hope I don't die earlier than that. But my father lived to be 99. And we do think that from like 70 to 95 was the most fun he ever had because, you know, he was on his own and he was, you know, I was out, you know, in college or beyond and my brothers were off in their lives. And so I, it's interesting that you talk about that because I've done a lot of episodes on the show about entrepreneurship over 50 or over 55. And, and I think that that's a key thing. I think there's a hidden message in there that I want to expose for the listeners as well. And I think it's a belief that you're sharing there is what you're, what you're believing, not because it's true or not, just because it's helpful is that your best times are ahead of you. Right. And I think just living with that type of belief is something that promotes optimism, promotes good things. It keeps you focused. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you living young and it keeps you pushing forward. And there's far too much in this world that'll tie you down. It will weigh you down and it will cause you grief. Well, And that goes right into this whole new keynote I developed this year called The Paradox of Potential. And it goes back to sort of that mindset. If you think, well, the last part of my life is I'm going to, you know, have pains and I'm going to be broke and I'm going to be this, then then you will. It goes back to Henry Ford's old saying, whether you think you can or you think you can, you're right. And there's a lot to be said for that. I agree. I agree. Hey, Phil, I really appreciate you being a guest on the show. I think you've shared your story in a way that is is both unique and inspiring for the people who tune into the show. So thank you so much. And one thing I want to add is that we didn't schedule this like a month or two months in advance. <laughs> Earlier today, I said, when am I going to have you on the show? And you said, how about right now? And we scheduled the actual recording 45 minutes after our email exchange. And I think that that is awesome. And I, th- I always think people who say, yes, let's make it happen and find a way to do it soon. I always think those are great examples of entrepreneurs rather than people who say, oh, I'd love to be on your show. How about October of 2019? I think I could fit it in. Opportunity doesn't wait for your schedule to allow it. <laughs> oh, that's a good quote as well. Well, Phil, thanks for, for being here. If somebody listened to this and they go, I have to know more about this guy. I, ne- I need some Phil Jones. How do they find you? Uh, two things. I mean, come via my website and it's philmjones.com. Make sure the M is there. Otherwise, what you're going to find is an England and Manchester United soccer player. And that's not me. So <laughs> philmjones is, is where you need to be.com. And uh, similarly, come hunt me out on Twitter or on Facebook. I'm pretty active on the platforms. I'd love to hear what you liked about it. So don't tell me you thought it was good. Tell me what you're going to do, what you're going to take from it, what you're going to act upon. And I'm at philmjonesuk. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. And again, thanks, Phil, for joining us. And thank you to everybody who tuned in. I say it every episode. If it wasn't for the audience, we wouldn't have a show. So (laughs) follow us on Twitter at Cool Podcast. Check us out on the Facebook group, which is Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. And if you want to get involved with the uh, little group coaching program, The Potential Project, I'm always looking for new people to join because uh, we have some really good talks. People are there trying to help each other. Just focus on how do we get between that gap between our potential and the results we achieve. So you can find out more about that by going to TomSinger.com. Go to the About button. You'll see the thing that says Group Coaching Program. We would love to have a few new members. So anyway, we're going to be back in a couple of days with another interview with somebody just as cool as Phil Jones. I know, Phil, that sounds hard to believe, but we'll find another very cool guest in a couple of days. But in the meantime, I challenge all of you, I want you to go out there and have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at TomSinger.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.